1: President and CEO of the Multi Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us for this conference call discussion on your end planning, or rather at the start of the new year, year beginning planning rather, to talk and about immigration compliance, primarily with a focus towards employers and all of the I's that you have to dot, the T's you have to cross to make sure that you as a business, as an entity, is complying with laws. This is in particular reference to both the H-1B program and the Permanent Labor Certification Program for the green card. So at the start of the year, obviously, you want to make sure you're looking around, checking all your paperwork, making sure you're doing everything right. Um, And so for those who are individuals who are listening into this conference, I guess it's less useful uh, for employers and your HR and your compliance team, it's going to be particularly helpful Joining me today are two of my esteemed colleagues at the Multi Law Firm, Senior Attorney Chris Dryman, who will speak right after me, and then next will be Alyssa Klein, who's uh, also a very experienced lawyer and a member of the firm. So we have, you have truly an amazing wealth of knowledge that we are going to talk about, uh, share and discuss with you. We're gonna talk about the LCA, the public access files, what are the Department of Labor requirements, what's required in the public access files, um, and issues pertaining to compliance, what, what kind of penalties the employer will face, all of that. So without further ado, we could get started. But before that, let me say not just welcome to you all, but Happy New Year to each of you and your loved ones. We hope that this year, 2023, will bring you much happiness, joy, and only good things, both from your business perspective and your family's perspective. So with that, let's get started. Uh, Chris, I'm going to ask you the first question. So people talk about the labor condition application with the H-1B filings, and then that there's a whole public access file requirements. What are these de- Department of Labor requirements yes. for an employer in terms of file
0: maintenance? Thank you, Shua. Um as most of the employers who are listening to this call and any of the employees who are listening um, in the in the context of h1b cases h1b1 cases and e3 cases all non immigrant visa statuses um, the employer here is required to file a labor condition application we call it an LCA and you're also, as an employer, required to maintain what's called a public access file or a public inspection file. And you have to have one of these files for each labor condition application. And there are specific uh, regulatory timelines set up um, regarding when you need to create these, how long they need to be maintained, and what has to go in each of these files. Um, Now, the petitioning employer has to complete the public access file, and they have to make it publicly available for inspection within one working day of filing the LCA um, and the employer must maintain that public access file for one year past the final date that any foreign national is employed pursuant to that LCA and the related non-immigrant classification such as H1B or H- H1B1 or E3. Um, if no workers were ever employed pursuant to that LCA in other words, if you ne- basically, if you never used it, public access file has to be kept for at least one year from the date that the LCA expired or was withdrawn by the employer. Now, this file must be made available to any potentially interested or affected parties. Um, that can mean members of the public. They have an absolute right to, to ask to see that or more importantly for employers, representatives from the U.S. Department of Labor who do sometimes randomly audit these files to see if the employer is, 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 pursuing, is uh, fulfilling their obligations.
1: Thank you so much, Chris. I appreciate that. Um, so in connection with the public access files, Alyssa, if I may jump to you, and by way, by way of information, Alyssa Klein, of course, has been doing a lot of our compliance and all of this other work Is there a particular sets of documents or information that has to go into all of the public access files?
2: Hi, Sheila, thank you. Yeah, there are specific documents that are required by regulation that have to go into each of these public inspection or public access files. Uh, The first uh, of which we'll talk about is the signed copy of the certified LCA. Now, these are filed online through the DOL's FLAG system. And uh, they, the employers have to um, keep the public access file with a copy of the certified LCA actually signed by the employer. Now, what Chris mentioned before is that these files have to be set up within one working day from submitting the LCA. But with the online system, it does take approximately a week to get a certified copy of the LCA. So just a tip to our employers out there, Um, that uh, go ahead and put in a copy of the in-process LCA into your public access file when you initially set it up. And then once you have the certified signed version to go ahead and replace that, okay? Um, Now the next item that uh, needs to go in there is called a wage rate documentation. So this is documentation demonstrating the wage rate to be paid to the worker. So if the LCA is for a single H-1B or E-3 beneficiary and specifies the offered salary rather than a wage range, uh, the LCA on its own uh, explains what the wage is that's being offered, which would satisfy the wage rate documentation requirement. Um, Otherwise, if there is a range, then the employer should include a statement specifying specifically uh, what they intend to pay that that employee or that non-immigrant thank, worker.
1: Thank you, Alyssa. So next, we jump to the issue of the explanation of the wage determination because employers often say, "Well, how do I determine? How do we? How what do I need to put in to show that I have done what I need to do in that public access file?" So the public access file must include a complete and unambiguous explanation of how the actual wage for the position was set. The evidence for this wage determination is typically provided in the form of some sort of a memorandum that summarizes the system that's used by that particular business or employer or company, right? So the documentation should also explain for how future raises will be determined, such as having a set process for providing employee reviews on an annual or a semi-annual basis. On top of that, in, additional, in addition, any time a pay raise is given, the public access file is sh- required to be updated with this information. Now, if there's any decrease in the person's salary, this may actually require an H-1B amendment to be filed. Employers should discuss this with their immigration attorney before making any salary reductions even if the reduced salary is still meeting the wage that is listed on the LCA. Um, Just to clarify, I guess a discussion point. So if when you initially did the H-1B, let's say the minimum wage was just example 80,000 and a year later you make it 85 and then 90 by the second year, now you come back to 85. Chris or um, Alyssa, do you think the employer in that case still would need to do something because There's a three year validity of the H1 petition. They have really not gone below the original wage, but they've gone up and now they've brought it back down. What are your thoughts on that issue?
2: Sorry, maybe Chris um, and I might think that this is a little bit of a gray area here. Um, But, you know, technically, if you've increased somebody's salary, you know, from 80 to 85 to 90, like you've said, Sheila, it's possible in the context of a DOL. Uh, investigation that the Department of Labor could uh, say that the company had to continue to pay that $90,000 without uh, having filed the amendment, even though it does seem like you're just reiterating the same, the older wage again, Uh, but but there are some potential risks there for the employer uh, bringing down the wage from what the person was actually getting paid.
1: Okay, and Chris, do you feel similarly or any different?
0: I would agree with Alyssa. We have seen situations in the context of DOL audits where if you're, you're paying someone a higher wage, the DOL regards that as resetting the wage. Um, so essentially, you've increased the increased the required wage you have to pay um, just by increasing, increasing the actual pay. So you'll, you could sometimes have a situation where, where there, are, there could be a back wage award from, from DOL if there's ever an audit
1: because you always, because the employer always has to pay the higher of the actual wage or the prevailing wage, and if the actual wage has now gone up, then technically Correct. now that's the actual wage, so you're supposed to pay the higher of the two. However, I know during COVID, for example, in the last two or three years, when a lot of companies, especially in 2020, dropped the salaries of many of their workers, but it was all, maybe all across the board, so now again, the, the actual wage the across the company may have dropped, and I think now we're getting into gray areas and there's so much unknown, and Department of Labor hasn't issued clarification on every issue because also, I guess, they're themselves trying to figure out answers to many of these issues, right? Um, so regarding the prevailing wage documentation, the public access file must show how the prevailing wage was determined. If the prevailing wage was determined, the uh, determination by the U.S. Department of Labor is used, then a prevailing, wa- then a prevailing wage deter- uh, the prevailing wage, dis- this documentation of the Department of Labor's prevailing wage will generally satisfy or meet this uh, test. However, given the processing time for these, they are not always a practical solution to use that as the basis. So a lot of times employers then end up using other forms of wage that I'm sure many of you are familiar with. Um, So with that, I'm gonna jump next to the issue of notification uh, or what we call notice of posting. So Chris, take it away.
0: Thank you, Sheila. Um, as most of the, as I'm sure the employers who are listening to this know, um, the, H- the, the LCA process um, has certain notification requirements. You have to notify various various interested parties um, that a, that an LCA has been filed, um, and the public access file has to include the required evidence that you've met these notification requirements. Um, now, if the, poli- if the position is is a collectively Bargained position. In other, words, in other words, a union job. Um, you have to provide a notice to the collective bargaining representative. Um, again, relatively rare these days. We don't, see, we don't see a lot of H-1Bs in unionized positions. But that is, that is one of the that is in the regulations, and you do see it occasionally. Um, more commonly, when there is no collective bargaining representative, uh, the employer is required to either. Post a notice at two conspicuous locations at the worksite. So we're talking a hard copy, hard copy written notice, or to provide electronic notification to all workers at the worksite who are in the same occupational classification. Um, it's pretty rare to see employers using the electronic notification method. Uh, it's just not very practical for most people. Um, but if it is used. Uh, you have to individually notify all of the relevant workers at the worksite, whether or not they actually work for the petitioning employer. So these could be other companies' employers who are in the same occupational classification at the worksite. You have to notify them too. Um, and if you're doing electronically, you have to you would have to individually notify each one of them. Um, so if you do choose to use this method, you'd have to have a copy of the notice sent and a list of the people who were sent the notices. Now, more commonly, what most employers do is they provide the physical, written, hard copy notice. Um, uh, It has to be in two locations at the work site, and you'd have to keep a copy of the notice and some type of documentation evidencing where and when it was posted. Um, and you have to keep that in the public access file. Now, for employers who place workers off-site, in other words, workers not at not at the company headquarters, work, employers who, employees who are working at client sites, um, it's really important to understand that the notices have to be posted at the actual work site. So if you have a situation where the end client says, no, I'm not going to post these notices, um, you cannot file the LCA. Uh, that is an absolute deal-breaker. You have to post these at the worksite. If the client says no, then then you cannot go forward with it. Now, the government is well aware of this. Um, They know a lot of in-clients won't cooperate with this, don't want to post these notices at their worksite, and they look for this when they're doing audits uh, because they're aware this is an issue, particularly for for consulting firms. Um, Now, the actual employee, the foreign national worker, has to be provided with a copy of the LCA at the time that they start working under that LCA. And you have to have evidence that this was done. Usually just have them sign a copy and that goes right in the public access file. Um, another thing that has to be in the public access file is what's called the benefits memorandum. Um, basically, it's pretty, uh, pretty straightforward. It's a memo explaining what are the benefits offered to workers. Uh, for example, if you offer health insurance, uh, paid time off, sick leave, this all should be listed. And also, of course, foreign national workers generally should be offered the exact same benefits as U.S. citizen employees.
1: Thank you, Chris. Uh, so, Alyssa, what is this requirement about the public access file requirements?
2: Right, thanks, Sheila. So there are, you know, some situations for, a, uh, you know, probably a smaller number of H-1B and E-3 employers you know, where there's gonna be some certain additional requirements that they have to adhere to. Uh, and and the, one of them that comes up is, is in the context of corporate restructuring. So if a company uh, is um, acquired or merges or goes through some sort of reorganization uh, and the existing entity, okay, um, is not changing any of the employment terms, they have an option of of continuing the obligations of the existing H-1B, but that also means continuing to uh, uh, abide by the requirements of the public access file. So in these situations, the company has has to add a a sworn statement, okay, where the new entity agrees to assume all of the obligations and liabilities that had been held by the initial sponsoring H-1B legal entity. Uh, In addition, the company needs to add a list of all of the affected LCAs, uh, if there is a new FEIN, the new federal uh, identification number of the new entity, and an explanation of its wage system, okay? Um, In addition, there's another situation where there are additional requirements, and that is if uh, a company is considered H-1B dependent, meaning that their proportion of H-1B to total workers meets a certain threshold. Um, or they're a willful violator, which means that that's a decision that's been made by the Department of Labor against the company. Um, so in these situations, if they're either dependent and or willful violator, uh, the and the employer indicates that they have what is called an exempt worker, okay, uh, then they have to also include a list of all exempt employees in their public access file. Exempt means that the non-immigrant worker is being paid at least $60,000 a year or has a related master's degree or higher to the specialty occupation, okay? Now, in the the situation where the worker is not exempt, okay, and the LCA is for a non-exempt worker, the employer needs to be able to demonstrate that U.S. workers were not displaced. And this applies to the employers' workers as well as secondary entities' employees if that h one b or e three worker is at a company another company's web work site, which is exactly the same situation that Chris was talking about when you have to post at other locations. So this is the same context offsite employment at perhaps a client or customer location, okay? Uh, so they have to be so the company has to be able to demonstrate that they made efforts to recruit, okay, but that U.S. workers were not available, okay? This is not the same recruitment criteria as green card cases, which we'll get to in a minute, but rather the employer is held to industry standard methods of recruitment. So there's nothing specified in the regulations like we have for PERM. Um, Because these additional requirements are associated with non-exempt workers, are are or may be difficult to satisfy, you know, in all scenarios, if possible, uh, the employer should hire workers that are exempt.
1: Makes perfect sense, Alyssa. And it's also interesting that that 60,000 per year number is really from the time the ACVIA Act was passed, I believe, sometime back in 1998. So, you're really talking about 25 years ago which is interesting that they've increased a lot of numbers and, you know, inflation for a lot of things. And even in the section before when Chris talked about public collective bargaining agreements, post-COVID, almost every university, every museum, every nonprofit, a lot of employers, including for-profits, but less, but very much more rampant, is unionization and collective bargaining agreements have again become the norm rather than the anomaly Um, just because I think people think that there's benefits to... to, to. So it's something that if you're an employer that's listening to this teleconference and would qualify under the union bargaining agreements, keep in mind the issues that Chris had earlier pointed out. Um, Okay, so the next question you as an employer may think about and wonder is, hey, so what sort of enforcement trends are we seeing with the U.S. Department of Labor audits and investigations of employers' public access funds. What if I'm not able to comply or mess up? What what's the what's the price I'm gonna to have to pay, right? Bottom line, employers were practical. We need to deal with the world. Well, audits or investigations obviously can arise unexpectedly. Generally the Department of Labor investigations tend to be triggered because of some type of a complaint. Um, generally it's a former employee who may believe that they were not paid the correct wage and then they file a complaint with the Department of Labor. This type of investigation can result in review of large amounts of files and the wage and pay history to all or many of the employees, the workers within the company, beyond just records relating to that one individual complainant. Because the Department of Labor figures, if there's one complaint, there's probably a trend and a problem with that particular employer. So they dig under and start investigating everything. So it's really important for you, for all of us as employers, to have files up to date, ready for review, because if you're not complying with the wages and what you're supposed to do under Department of Labor laws, pay them at a cer- certain interval, interval, um, pay the prevailing wage, etc., then you would be subject to this additional scrutiny. We're seeing a lot of companies being fined for violations such as failure to post but also being subject to debarment, which means that that particular H-1 employer could be prevented from using the H-1B and the PERM program for permanent green card sponsoring. Of course, as an employer, you can timely file uh, an appeal, but of course that takes time, it takes money, it becomes costly, it's distracting, it doesn't help you to focus on your core business if you're a technology company or an insurance company, et cetera. Um, and you're you know, spending all this time retaining my esteemed colleagues, other lawyers at other firms, um, to basically work and help you with this process. And even though some of the items may not be able to be corrected in time, such as a posting that did not go up before the LCA was submitted, a company can certainly make good faith efforts during an internal audit to minimize violations, and this would also show the Department of Labor that they made good faith efforts to comply moving forward. An internal audit will actually save a company time, money, and headaches in the long run. Um, so always plan to do that just to make sure that you've dotted your I's and crossed your T's. Next, let's jump to the issue, Chris, if I may, of what are the documents for PERM, the Permanent Green Card process uh, for retention of documents by the employer?
0: Thank you, Sheila. Um, now we're moving, of course, from non-immigrant applications, H-1B or E-3, to uh, Permanent applications, green card cases, um, and the first step for most uh, employment-based green card cases is a PERM application with the Department of Labor, and that has its own requirements. Um, you have to maintain copies of applications for permanent employment uh, certification filed with the Department of Labor and supporting documentation for at least five years from the time of filing. Uh, The Department of Labor can audit before filing and up to five years from the time of filing. And the documentation that I'm going to talk about supporting the application uh, isn't filed with the application. Uh, People who do perm cases here, you know it's an electronic electronic submission. Um, But the certifying officer at the Department of Labor can issue an audit request. And in that situation, the employer is going to be required to provide this documentation at that time. Uh, before there can be a final determination on the PERM application. Now, these can all be maintained either in a paper form or an electronic form. It's entirely up to the employer of how they maintain these records. Um, What you have to keep in general, I have to keep copies of the actual applications, uh, which is the Form 9141, which is the prevailing wage request, and the 9089, which is the actual labor certification, um, you have to have a copy of the prevailing wage determination and any uploaded supporting documentation like a wage survey. Um, you would normally keep the the job order to the state workforce agency, um, although there is a case from the Board of Alien Labor Certification Appeals that says that even if you don't provide that in an audit request, the case shouldn't be denied just because of that. But it's still something typically you would you would want to provide. Um, you'd also want to provide tear sheets from the Sunday newspapers in other words proof that the required job ads were actually placed in the newspaper and you've signed a signed notice of filing which is the basically the internal posting that's also required uh, when you when you do a perm application you'd want copies of signed in-house media. So if you internally advertise the, the job availability as part of the recruitment process, you'd want a signed result of recruitment. In other words, uh, basically a written statement explaining what were, what were the results of all this advertising you did for the job. Because the, the point of this whole process essentially is to prove that there were no U.S. workers available and qualified for this position. So you have to show that you made a good faith effort to actually, actually Uh, fulfill, hire a U.S. worker. So, I mean, you would need this signed statement basically describing what you did in terms of recruitment, I mean, how you advertised this job, how many people were hired, um, how many U.S. workers applied for the job and were rejected, and you'd have to explain why those U.S. workers who applied were rejected. You'd also want to include any resumes that you received in response to your job ads. So, this would demonstrate who applied and why they were not considered for the job and these have to be lawful job-related reasons for rejecting them so ability willingness to work or their qualifications for the position Um, and you also have to document your attempts to contact any of these people who applied who were potentially qualified so copies of emails uh, telephone logs showing when you tried to call this person notes from any job interviews that you conducted with these candidates and documentation of rejections of the applicants. Again, very important because the point of this whole process is to demonstrate that there were no no qualified U.S. workers available for this job. You'd also want to include evidence of three additional forms of advertising for the job, which is required for professional jobs, which is the majority of PERM applications. Um, Basically, the employer is going to pick from a list, and they have to choose three of these as part of the process. Uh, I'm not going to go into great detail on this. It's a little outside the scope of our, our, our conference today, but just to give you a basic idea, these can be things like job fairs, the employer's website, job search website, other than the employer. so in other words, a, a commercial internet job search uh, website, proof of on-campus recruiting, so at a college or university, proof that you've done advertising in trade with trade or professional organizations. Proof that you retained private employment firms to try to find workers. Proof that you have an employee referral program um, with monetary incentives in the company. Proof that you contacted campus placement offices. Proof that you advertised in local or ethnic newspapers. Or proof of radio and television ads. Now, you're also going to include, have have to submit as part of an audit request, Proof how the employee that you're attempting to hire, in other words, the foreign national, qualifies for the job that's being offered. So this would be their educational documents and a credential evaluation if we're talking about foreign uh, foreign education. Um, proof of their experience, so experience letters, or copies of any license that are required for the job. Um, for example, if it's a doctor or a dentist, you'd have to include proof of their licensure.
1: Thank you, Chris. So this... This is uh, very detailed, as you can see, a lot of ice to dot and P's to cross here. Uh, What about additional different kinds of situations, Alyssa? I know we're always mindful of the time and I think we're doing great on time. Uh, We're a little under 30 minutes, so this is perfect. But what about things like special handling, college, university professors, live-in domestic workers, all kinds of other situations uh, where there are any additional or different requirements from the employer's perspective? Sure. So
2: there could be different situations where an employer needs to keep uh, additional supporting uh, documentation in their files. Um, we won't spend much time on, uh, you know, some of these. It's just not something that would normally come up with our uh, clients or I believe anybody listening, you know, like professional team athletes, sheep herders, uh, you know, college and university teachers. Um, but, you know, there there is always going to be a requirement. We want the employer to... Um, you know, basically make an attestation to the, uh, you know, terms and conditions of employment as listed in the PERM. For a live-in household domestic worker, you have to evidence the prior experience of at least one year and also the business necessity for having the person live-in. There will be special handling requirements for college and university teachers. And, you know, again, sheep herders, professional team athletes would carry additional Uh, items as well. Uh, Something that might come up more common though is, you know, if an employer has to explain why training maybe was, you know, was not possible to acquire skills in a reasonable time period, okay, or the business necessity of certain employment requirements, Uh, you know, for example, if they're requiring a special skill like a foreign language, or if perhaps their education experience requirements are you know, beyond what the DOL would consider normal for that occupation. The employer would, you know, sign off on a business necessity letter, establishing that the specific level of education and experience is required by the company due to the particular business requirements to their needs. You would also then back that up with resumes of other company employees in the same specific position to show that this is consistent with the company requirements. Other documentation that the company can provide, establishing that the employer's requirements are within the industry norm should be kept in the file. This could be job ads from other employers, alternative wage surveys, DOL's own, Department of Labor's own publications, such as the Occupational Outlook Handbook, okay? Um, Other situations that could come up is if the company needs to explain why they have alternative job requirements and why they're substantially equivalent. So you could have a degree, you know, like a bachelor's in five or master's in zero, you know, explain that that's substantially equivalent. Um, They may have to actually demonstrate their minimum requirements. Uh, Certain situations require uh, experience gained on the job to be documented, in which case the employer would need to provide that type of verification letter. Uh, The employer would also include their Uh, company compliance documents, uh, financials, their tax identification number. Maybe, you know, there could be situations where the employer has to provide uh, in their file area and industry conditions proof of layoffs. Uh, For example, if the employer notified the potentially qualified U.S. worker that had been laid off um, before proceeding with the PERM, And that they considered any of these interested former employees before proceeding. Okay. Um, There's also a requirement, you know, to disclose whether or not the beneficiary is of a familial relationship uh, to someone in the company. So an employer may have to provide evidence to show that there was no undue influence in that dynamic if that relationship exists. And uh, as stated before, the company may also have to include alternative wage surveys or other documentation that was used to support a prevailing wage determination
1: request? Thank you, Alyssa. So, I mean, as you can see, the documentation and information is somewhat onerous. I think a lot of busy employers who are not familiar with U.S. immigration with the process or don't do enough cases or do one-offs here and there may be clueless about this, may not appreciate or understand it, and HR That's not familiar with a lot of this will not be able to understand what needs to be done to protect yourself as an employer, a business, an entity, et cetera. It's always wise to consult with lawyers if you're not sure what to do. And so part of us sharing this information with you today was to educate you, to empower you, to help you to understand how the process works. And we certainly look forward to continuing to help you during this course of this year and in future years to come. So on behalf of myself, Sheila Murthy on behalf of Chris Dryman, Alyssa Klein, and our entire Muthi Law Firm team, we thank you for joining us for today's teleconference on how to be better prepared to start your, your beginning planning for you as an employer or an entity and how we, can, we at the Murthy Law Firm can continue to take good care of you. Here is wishing you and your loved ones a very, very happy new year and only good things for everyone. Take care, have a wonderful afternoon and a good year ahead. Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: This is a free service. The content is the protected copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.